Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello and welcome to History Rage, the podcast where we invite historians to put forward their grand remonstration. The podcast where we claim a divine right to correct the myths and restore reputations. I am public historian Paul Bavel, and I am here with my loyal co-host and very own laughing cavalier, Kyle Glover. Hello. You can hear the laugh, can't you? Yeah. Well, this week, dear ragers, we are here to salvage a royal reputation. Or are we? Well, that's up to you to decide. But approaching the executioner's block to stake a stand for God and the King, we welcome this week host of the Cavalier Cast podcast and author of Charles I's Private Life, Mark Turnbull. Mark, welcome to History Rage. Thanks, Paul. Yeah, great to be here. Wonderful. So I gather your journey towards where you are now started some years ago with a visit to Helmsley Castle as a 10-year-old and went on from there. Can you tell us a bit about your personal history and what led you from Hemsley Castle into this particular area of history? Well, I mean, I've always loved history for as long as I can remember. I mean, I used to collect coins as a kid as well. So I'm not actually sure if it stemmed from collecting coins, you know, and sort of seeing the different monarchs and sort of the history touching and feeling the history, or whether Mm. that came as a result of the, you know, reading history books and things. But I think Helmsley was definitely the turning point, age 10, for Civil War. Um, It was almost like an awakening, like I was meant to discover this era. You know, it just was fascinating. Mm. The gift shop, you know, if if we want to be precise in location, (laughs) that's where it started. So, (laughs) like, for all kids, it was quite a highlight of the tour, you know, going to Helmsley. Yeah. Amazing sight, you know, really sort of atmospheric. Um, But in the gift shop, so bought this pack of cards. And it displayed the images of the English monarchs from the conquest. Uh, And then on the reverse of each card was just a little detail um, about the reigns of each king or queen. Uh, It was the the card that uh, talked about Charles I. That captured me immediately, you know, absolutely immediately. Um, Not only was it sort of Van Dyke's magnificent portrait of Charles I at the hunt, you know, the claws, the colours, 
But it was that detail on the back as well, you know, that said uh, he'd been executed by his own people. So you're looking at this portrait, magnificent, regal portrait. You turn over and, you know, instantly I thought executed, you know, by his own people. And it was that fate that made me just think, you know, how, how on earth did that happen? You know, what happened to come to that point? Uh, and, you know, from that moment, I was hooked. Yeah. But yeah, we're talking about pre-internet days, you know, that sort of thing. So really for me, it, you know, I'd found out that little snippet on this card. And then the next thing that sort of brought it alive, and I mean really brought it alive, was stumbling across the film Cromwell. Um, on TV. Right. So I was up early one morning before everybody else, pro- probably about a year or two after that. And, and just seeing the, the, the characters, you know, it was exquisite really. I mean, the, there's a lot of inaccuracies, but as a film, it was exquisite portrayal mm. of that period. And I recognized it straight away, you know, from, from that Van Dyke portrait and, you know, the King was on there, Alec Guinness, uh, Richard Harris. It was, just fantastic. And, and that really just brought it alive. So you've got the facts and then bringing it to life. And then that got me into reenactment. So age 17, joined the Sealed Knot, had ideas about sort of, you know, get, getting involved, living and breathing the Civil War. <laughs> you um, grow out of that, don't you? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> well, the first, the first big battle was knocking around at the front of a pike scrum was, was a test, definitely. But phenomenal sort of experience, you know, with cavalry, the cavalry going past, you just walking onto this field, which was cut off really from modern day. You know, it was enclosed and and we just marched out onto the field. And there was, you know, what seemed like thousands of people dressed up in in costume, fighting, you know, forming up ready. And it was, you know, combined sort of, what you read about it, watching the film, but actually being there in, in that setting was just something else. Yeah, trying to breathe in one of those gunpowder clouds that just comes from a musket block. You you know, you can't you can't really judge that from books. You need mm. to be surrounded by a mass load of gunpowder in order to really get how unpleasant that is. Yeah, and 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 especially that that pike scrum. I mean, at the start, you know, what they said is you know, new recruits like you uh, will keep you towards the back. If you go to the front, you'll know about it because, you know, you'll be squashed and, and pressed up. You can do that so much, but once you're in this swirling uh, battle, then, you know, you rapidly, you go wherever you need to go. You go wherever you, you're taken. Sometimes you just stuck up against people. You go wherever this scrum moves. You, you've got no mm-hmm. choice. And yeah, it, it was just an amazing experience, you know, horse, you've seen the horses coming up and, you know, going along the pike line with the swords, you know, be, you know, the exertion, the physical exertion as well was, you know, gives you a little bit of a sense of, of what it must've been like uh, with the chaos and, and the noise, you know, how the heat as well, you know, mm-hmm. if, it, if this is in summertime, especially. Yeah. Fantastic. And, the, and then, and then suddenly, you know, having to sort of, play by the rules as well you know if there's a guide there as to who should win that day i'm assuming, I'm assuming given tonight's rage matter that you uh, that, that you took up your pike for for god and the king yeah well this is the thing you see so when i joined the the sealed knot uh, you don't get a choice so and i think it, it does just 
depend on your your location in the country, maybe what the the various armies' strengths are. You know, so I I was put into Newcastle's Royalist Regiment, the White Courts. So yeah, it was a, a Royalist Regiment, which suited me because I, I a Royalist sympathy. <laughs> okay, well, let's let's move from sympathy to anger then, shall we? And we will kick off with the with our rage question then. So, Mark, welcome aboard the rage train. What is it you wish everyone would just stop believing? Well, what it is is every time you read about this accusation that Charles wouldn't negotiate and that he was stubbornly and arrogantly refusing to compromise at every turn. That's what really riles me up. You know, it's absolutely not true. Yes, he was stubborn and yes, he could be quite arrogant, you know, but he Mm. certainly did negotiate. He gave away vast tranches of hereditary power. Um, You know, he backed down and the, the, the point here with Charles is like that there's so many contradictions to him. You know, he backed down so much. This famed clemency, or should we say naivety, time and time again, uh, he displayed this. And he, he was condemned as being weak in his, uh, in his time, and he still is today for that. But he's equally condemned for not going the whole hog and just rolling over completely and mm-hmm. just giving away everything. So, yeah, it's, 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 it's quite frustrating to hear, you know, well, if only he'd negotiated, he could have saved his life. If only he'd negotiated, the monarchy wouldn't have been abolished. Um, you know, and it, it's not as simple as that at all. It never is with history, is it? It never is. Very true. Okay, so, well, let's start then. History, as they say, is written by the winners, and I think we can all agree Charles lost. Yeah. So, basically what we have is we have the, we, we have the history and we have the reputation of Charles I as, to a point, being written by the parliamentarian cause followed by, probably written by Charles II, neither of which is what you could consider unbiased to any degree. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like getting Henry VII to do a biography of Richard III. So can you tell us about the man, you know, his character, and what type of monarch that he really was? Yeah, I'll start, because I think that the two very, very different things. So I'll start with the monarch that he was first. So there's absolutely no doubt that Charles wanted to emulate the Spanish monarchy. So uh, the Spanish monarchy is very formal, austere, lavish, cultured. Um, and there were powerful favourites getting their hands dirty in the day-to-day grime of politics. And that, that really allowed the king to stay above all of that, uh, you know, like a godlike figure um, above it all, enjoying sort of whatever, whatever he wanted to do um, and not getting his hands dirty. And mm-hmm. that is really what Charles wanted to emulate. You know, he, he visited Madrid um, in 1623 when he tried to clinch a, a marriage with the Infanta. And, and that was the moment, I think, when he saw the Spanish court and just felt that, you know, this was quite natural for him. But for all of that desire, he just could not pull it off. He, Charles could not keep out of the detail couldn't leave management to someone else um which oh god save us from micromanagers with power <laughs> well i think in the civil war i think that was part of the problem that you know he was being woken up uh, at, the, at the at the crack of dawn because a message had come at midnight and it needed him to sanction it you know things like that he, he couldn't not micromanage but the problem with that and that's all well and good but the problem is that he didn't have 
or, or off. I, I wouldn't say that he never had, but very often he had poor political judgment. So not only would he personally stick by his unpopular ministers, you know, and, and back them up. I mean, it, it's admirable in one way, you know, that this uh, monarch, this formal monarch, wouldn't actually use his ministers as fall guys. You know, he was actually defending them. He would actually say, you know, they're acting on my orders. And that's whether he was dictating to them or whether they were taking away that they thought he would support. Hmm. But to his own detriment as well, you know, he, he's there backing them up. And, and the as- But the aspect of this um, Spanish style that really, really did, that he excelled at, was the formality. So, so for him, it held people back. You know, they didn't see his vulnerability. Uh, it stopped him being sort of harangued by courtiers because Charles just could not say no. I found it very difficult to say no. And it worked so well that anyone looking in on this court just rarely saw the true man at its centre. And, and I think, you know, nearly 400 years later, I think that's one of the reasons why he is very two-dimensional nowadays. You know, we, we're on the outside looking in at this famed, formal monarch and we it's very easy to lose sight of charles the man mm. and they were two very very different things you know charles the monarch and charles the man his devotion to the duty of his role i, I think was as strong as elizabeth ii's you know so, yeah so charles worked he worked hard on the business of government you know there's innumerable documents that are annotated in his hand <laughs> and, and yeah that micromanagement side but obviously, the, the big difference, I think, between the two, you know, you've got that core religious belief that drove the, you know, the two monarchs. But obviously, the key is Charles had inherited political power. You know, he, he was able to define how he saw his God-given duty, whereas, uh, you know, Elizabeth II had that, the boundaries of a constitutional monarch. Mm-hmm. So that, that's as a monarch, but as a man, order and regularity. They were key to his existence. So he was an accomplished rider, tennis player. He could handle his arms. Um, you know, and although he was slight of build, he was fit and athletic, which, which is a, another point, I think, which can often get lost today. You know, even today, people just think of him as a, a sickly, you know, small, feeble monarch, you know, and I'll come on to that a bit later. But um, he, he certainly was very athletic. He had a keen eye, loved art. Loved to study, read classics, debate theology. And then his relationships, you know, he had a great love and devotion to his wife, Henrietta. Um, he stayed with her during her illnesses, you know, childbirth, he was with her. Um, there's at one point he rides 360 miles in four days to get back to her side from Berwick. Um, you know, he, you look at his ministers as well. He'd rush to the bedsides of his ministers when they were seriously ill. There was almost an expectation, you know, that, that he should be condoling them if, if something terrible happened. He wore his heart on his sleeve. He took criticism of his character very personally. Criticised his government. That was one thing. But actually, if you were to say that Charles, you know, if you slight his honour or say that he was dis- deceitful, that, that would really draw a response. Because honour and chivalry meant a great deal. You know, he wanted to emulate St. George. He wanted to be yeah. a living, breathing St. George. Moral-wise, so morally strong, personally courageous. You know, I, I don't think that can be argued. But 
there was two things that he feared more than anything. Uh, one was losing the love of his subjects, uh, and the other was his family safety. And I think that stemmed from the murder of the Duke of Buckingham, his great favourite. I think from that moment on, he realised that actually, you know, nobody was particularly safe. And, and that was what made him prone to weak decisions. You know, whenever he felt his family was threatened or if he felt that he, you know, when there's riots in London, for example, it's, the, it, it's that moment when he gets unnerved because he, yeah. he thinks, well, actually, you know, if I lose the love of this, you know, my subjects, well, you know, what kind of monarch am I, you know? And, and it plays into that chivalrous side of him. So I think above all, he had his faults and he had his foibles, like everybody does. His character traits and these qualities, obsession with being loved by, by his people, was there anything he could have done to save his monarchy and ultimately to save himself? Yeah, so I think if we, if we think about the start of his reign, there, there, you know, with hindsight, there, there are some things definitely that he could have done differently. I, th- I think if we accept happened and we get to the civil war um i think that there isn't any way that he could have i i really don't think there's any way that he could have saved the monarchy or his own life i I think there's only two ways that he could have done it basically and that if he accepted the ignominy of being a complete puppet monarch or if he sold out to the army and used them to restore him the new model army but you know that sets a very very dangerous precedent you know, many people say that that if he wasn't so willful, he wouldn't have had to die. But I think that's blinkered. You know, I think what we've got to remember by the time of his defeat in the Civil War is that it wasn't just him playing off his opponents during his captivity. He was also being used by them too. You know, they, they are trying to outmaneuver each other by trying to win him over to their side. So he was a royal pawn. Um, you know, so we've got the Scots who are approaching him and saying, you know, if you support us, you know, we'll give you military backing, but you you must introduce Presbyterianism in England. Mm. He's got Parliament who are saying, we want constitutional reform, we want an abolition of bishops, uh, we want control of the militia. Um, and then he's got the New Model Army, who whose terms are very, very much more favourable than the others. But what they do want is freedom of worship for, you know, smaller minorities and sects, and they want to move away from state religion. Now, I think a lot of the time that's probably his only get out, you know, is is to actually take the army up on the terms that they're given them. But as I said, it's a dangerous precedent. You know, how can he deal with an army who have no lawful grounds to negotiate? You know, this is a king who... Outwardly, you know, as much as Parliament would say, we fight for King and Parliament, Charles was equally saying, I fight for, you know, King, Parliament and Liberties. Now, if he made a deal with an army, that, that leaves that assertion in, in tatters. You know, he can't, he can't use the sword to overpower his Parliament, basically, his, his lawful, rightful Parliament there, as it was at the time. You know, it would make the army kingmakers. You've got the power of the sword above the power of the law. So, so really, you've got the Scots, you've got Parliament, you've got the New Model Army, and you've got the king. And each one of them is as equally devout in their religious beliefs. Hmm. So each one of them will not negotiate away their consciences. And they all think that God favours them. You know, so, you know, in that setting, 
Charles just could never have negotiated enough to save his monarchy. He'd have to be a puppet or he'd have to perjure himself before God and sell out on his faith. And I think probably it's this that perhaps his son, Charles II, sent up a bit on, you know, so Charles II, I think, would potentially make promises, you know, even if it's regarding his personal faith, but Charles I just could not cross that line. Yeah. So yeah, I, I really don't think there was a way out of it once it got to civil war. It was almost like an arms race, you know, the, the two sides are, are gearing up and you know that unless one of these factions comes out of it having destroyed the others, there there couldn't be any security for any of them. So in the build up to that then, does Charles offer any sort of significant concessions, compromises to either initiate or maintain negotiation with the various factions that are around. So, so during the war itself, I think it had got to the, it was a slow burn. So I think pre-war, Charles was making concessions, but a lot of the time he wasn't making them at the right time. So quite often he would be backed into a corner potentially before he would make, you know, some sort of concession. Or he would do it, but he would do it in the wrong manner. You know, if if he would only fully embrace that concession, it might have sort of reassured people. But then once the war began, you know, and, and, and it got to the point where he, he did a lot to try and sort of temper Parliament's feelings, you know, and, and sort of concerns. Mm. But then it, it just got to the point of the civil war where there was just no turning back. You know, once wars declared, um, you can't enter a war and then show yourself as being willing to go for a peace at any cost because people are not going to fight for you. And, and that was yeah. the problem that he had at the start. He was still making concessionary approaches to Parliament while they were building up an army. And, and Charles was finding that he couldn't actually get people together to fight for him. You know, so he's only got a couple of thousand people. Uh, troops and then parliament's getting an army 15,000 you know ready to go on the march so you know that that was Charles's problem throughout you know he often wasn't ruthless enough but definitely the turning point came in 1648 so he does he does open up to concessions um towards the end of the war but they were very very much on his terms you know and I'll, I'll come on to a little bit why. But in 1648, mm-hmm. the biggest concessions of the war, uh, that's when he makes them at Newport. So he's, he's even gone so far as to apologise to the Prince of Wales. Um, and he's saying, you know, I'm really sorry for granting too much away in these treaty negotiations, you know, but um, the, the, peace, the peace of the kingdom warrants it. And he goes that far that Parliament actually invite him to London. And, and this is the... Remember in, in that mix of sort of Scots, King, Parliament and New Model Army, it's at this point where it seems like the King and Parliament are going to join together to the detriment of the others. And that's when the army step in. So any any MPs favourable to Charles, even any MPs that are sort of waverers or, or you know impartial, they get purged. The army marches in excludes them, they arrest some. Um, so then you've got the new model army at the political helm. And, mm. and, and this is the, the point where judging Charles on his willingness or unwillingness to negotiate based on sort of 1646, certainly to 1649, 
again, it's just part of the picture. So if we take it back a bit pre-war, you know, he started making concessions right from 1641. And I think this is what tends to get overlooked. So, you know, 1646, 47, 48, Charles's platform is severely restricted because he'd given away so much power pre-war. So what sort of, can you give us some examples of the powers that he's given away pre-war? Yeah. So the first one, which I I think most people agree, you know, that it had to be given away anyway, but ship money. So this, this dubious tax, uh, which, which he extended from coastal towns to inland towns to everybody to to sort of pay for the fleet, um, to protect them from pirates, to protect shipping from enemy states. He gives that up. He then passes a triennial act where, where he agrees that parliament should be summoned every three years. And that is a major breakthrough um, because that is a, a lot of hereditary power given up. And he does that in state. He goes to parliament, he goes in crown and robes, uh, and from the throne, he, he agrees to that bill. And, and later in the war, you, you hear, or, you know, the, the Charles writes to his supporters saying, you know, I can't go back on that legislation. You know, I agree to that as an act of parliament, you know, and I can't go back on act of parliament. So it is quite something to hear him say that. He then consents to the trial of the Earl of Strafford, you know, so you're talking about for this formal king, his most trusted and able minister, this, the Earl of Strafford, almost brings the Stuart dream to reality of uniting the three kingdoms uh, with with similar religion, mm-hmm. religious observances but the again the embarrassment of, of agreeing to a trial first of all you know charles thinks that the trial can't succeed so he agrees to it he's got nothing to lose but it's still a, it's still an embarrassment the trial collapses so he's right the trial collapses but then parliament don't just give up they move to an act of attainder so you know the trial collapses this is the last ditch way of getting strafford's head um, and they push this through parliament as a an act whereby for the safety of the state, this guy should be executed. So it passes through Parliament, no doubt. Uh, The Lords are a bit more dubious because he's one of them. You know, what's to say the precedent here? But Charles makes a really unwise move. So he goes to the House of Lords and says, you know, my conscience is engaged here. I can't agree to this. So actually the Lords think, well, the King's not going to agree to it. Well, we might as well pass it because he's going to stop it. And and the other thing here is you've got mobs, organised mobs marauding around the capital. You know, you've you've got violence breaking out all over. So nobody wants to be the blocker who who's potentially trying to save this man's life. Anyone that votes in favour of Strafford, their names are pasted up around London. You know, and the mobs chase after them. So yeah, you've also got the so so that that was a very big one. You know, he agreed to the um, act of attainder, which ended Strafford's life. You know, he was executed. Star Chamber, uh, that was abolished, so he agreed that this court, which had upheld the monarchy since the start of the Tudor reign, um, you know, this this was abolished. In Scotland, he's letting the Scots nominate candidates for the major offices of state. Um, And just before war breaks out, he allows a bill to pass that removes bishops from the House of Lords. So, in effect, that culls a loyal body of support in the Lords in one go. And and I think that that was granted really to show Parliament that 
that he he wasn't being controlled by his wife. Um, so again, it, you know, at this point, mm. he's trying to get Henrietta abroad. You know, he knows that things are getting out of control. She is, you know, he's taken her out of London. They fled London at that point, uh, and he's agreeing to this. So, you know, but all of these concessions that come too late, you know, really, I mean, both sides have just got no trust. And and plus for Charles, when he grants a concession, nothing happens other than Parliament comes with another. So he gets another con- another demand on his doorstep saying, right now you need to do this. And it, and it gets greater and greater in significance um, because mm-hmm. now they're in. Parliament fear that he could destroy them if he gets that power back. But for him, Charles is feeling, well, they are out to destroy me, you know. Yeah, they're just taking power after power after power after power and there's no sign of the stopping. Yeah. You've got to reach a point where enough is enough, isn't it? That's it, yeah. Yeah, that that's it. I mean, you, you can only get your pocket picked a few times before you actually get hold of the, the, the thief, you know, and confront yeah. them. So, yeah, so Charles starts to sort of back up at, the, at you know, early 1642. He's, you know, he's refusing uh, Parliament's demands for control of the militia. He's saying, by God, not for an hour. You know, he doesn't let um, the English Parliament nominate or control the officers of state. Um, he's refusing to compromise his personal beliefs, religious beliefs, um, and he's standing fast on the abolition of bishops. So they're out of the House of Lords, but he's saying no. You know, you know that the Church of England is lawfully established. I've inherited it. You know, I'm I'm on a bound to protect it. Mm-hmm. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. So earlier you mentioned the different factions were pulling in different ways in terms of religion. But what was Charles's own religious beliefs and how did they influence these things we've been talking about? Well, it's, it's ironic, really, because Charles, as a as a Scotsman, you know, born in Scotland, he he absolutely uh, adhered to the Church of England. You know, he he really saw the the form and the worship of the Church of England as sort of key to stability, uh, and that was one of the reasons why him and his father uh, wanted to use use that sort of blueprint to to introduce that and reform the Scottish Church to be more along that same lines. And Strafford succeeded in reforming uh, the church in Ireland to, to a degree, you know, f- again, for the form to match England. So Charles has a, a very, very strong belief in, in the Church of England. But I think his, his religious beliefs as well, and this feeds back into those concessions pre-war, you know, as his defeats mount, when he's in captivity, he does take a deep, long look at why this has happened. 
And I think that's when he goes back to this, uh, the Earl of Strafford in one and Strafford's death. You know, he's consented to the death of an innocent man. And, and it's then, I think, when he, when he thinks that God is punishing him for all of that. You know, so I think th- this is the point where he's compromised. He thinks he's compromised his own conscience. He sinned in the eyes of God. He's broken his coronation oath, which was to maintain the crown's powers. And I think it's, what you've got is Charles actually seeing the civil war as divine punishment for what he's done. So he, he tries to make amends. So in 1646, he's in captivity with the Scots. He's actually feeling the need to negotiate with God more, more than yeah. his opponents. You know, he feels by this point, I have to make it up to the Almighty and regain his favour, not, not my enemies. You know, he's done enough of concessions, he's given enough power away. So by standing firm on the Church of England, that's, that's what he's hoping. He hopes that that will redeem not just him and his person, but it'll protect the consciences of his people. And, you know, God's favour will shine again on the three kingdoms and restore peace. So he's not alone in that manner of thought either. You know, his enemies all believe just as fervently that they were God's instruments doing God's work. But I think that's really why no peace could ever be agreed until one faction had destroyed the others. You know, you when you, you know, you've got the new model army eventually win out, you know, and, they, and then Cromwell goes to Scotland, crushes the Scots, the Irish, you know, and that's when you have that central faction that dominates the others. And, and it's, it's only then when you get some sort of settlement. So, yeah, I, th- I think Ch- th- there's a, a really touching letter, actually, that he writes to Rupert towards the end of the war when, when Rupert is saying, look, you know, it's finished. You know, you, you are best off negotiating a settlement. And Charles says, well, as a man, I agree, you know, that I am facing utter ruin. But as a Christian uh, and a committed Christian, with a belief in God and a belief that he would never abandon an anointed monarch. You know, I can't go along with that, you know. So this is Charles the monarch outweighing the thoughts of Charles the man. Is there a case there where he's thinking, you know, it's it, it's God's church to reform, not mine? It's, it's not for me to dictate how people worship, etc. Or have I got the completely the wrong end of Charles there? No, I, I don't. Th- I think what, yeah, I, I don't think he necessarily thought that God might want to reform the church because I, I, you know, I sp- it's less. I mean, pi- it's more along the lines of the, like Parliament very much wants to well, they want to say church reform mm. that he's not willing to give. Now, is there an element there that his religion is to an extent preventing that from happening because this is this is God's church, not mine? Well, I, I think Charles sees it all as one. I think he sees his religion and his beliefs as at one with God's, at one with the Church of England, you know, and that church is lawfully established. So you've got so much knitted together in that, you know, not just that personal belief. You've got the legal aspect, you've got the inherited aspect, you've got God. You know, God's God's almost reformed the Church of England previously to this middle way, you know, which has protected England from the, the savagery of, well, prior to the Civil War, at least, you know, it had protected England from the savagery of the European conflict. Problem is, you, you can never strike a balance, can you? You know, that's the thing. It was argued. So, so um, Alexander Henderson, who was a Presbyterian, did argue with Charles in Newcastle in 1646 
that the reform of the Church of England hadn't gone far enough. And he was arguing that Charles, you know, God had actually sort of given Charles the opportunity to finish that reform, you know, and take it further. Um, but Charles obviously opposed that, you know. Hmm. Okay, so once he's lost the Civil War then, you know, he's, because I understand he loses, loses the Civil War, but then we find that he's he's technically still in power, but what's his standing like after losing the Civil War? How how much how, how much room to negotiate does he have? Well, I, th- I think the, the room is still very, very tight um, because he's lost the war. And, you know, you'd, you'd think that he's in a completely weak position. But actually, um, the, 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 the next war that took place, in effect, was over the peace. Uh, and that's when you have all of these factions then trying to manoeuvre and to sort of mm. gain the upper hand to get a peaceful settlement that suits them. Um, and the king, Fairfax described the king as the golden ball. Um, you know, if, if whoever got the king's sanction w- would almost sort of, th- you know, their, their their faction would be the kingmaker, you know, and they'd have that seal of approval from the king. And it really could have gone either way. It could have gone either way. I mean, I, th- I think Charles wasn't willing to give up anymore um, because, as we've seen, you know, he didn't really have a lot to, to sort of like give away by that point. Um, there were there were sort of red lines that were left, but I think the the desperation from all sides to get to a peaceful settlement almost saw the king's restoration a number of times mm. um, linked to one of those factions. You know, so the New Model Army were, you know, they did approach him a number of times. You know, saying you know offering to restore him to the throne. Uh, they offered to allow. Um, the Church of England, you know, and Episcopacy, they were more open to that than Parliament or the Scots were, as long as Charles, you know, allowed uh, their worship and maybe moved away from that state-controlled religion. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it, it was a knife edge. Um, I think in terms of contemporaries, you asked what his contemporaries thought of his stance. Well, there was criticism very close to home, so from his wife, no less. Um, so Henrietta, who was a French... Catholic princess, mm-hmm. she was pushing him from at least 1646 to agree to any terms. You know, so she she had literally said, "Why don't you just agree to those terms that they're presenting?" You know, don't don't risk everything. You know, for bishops, for example, and Henrietta, it's it's quite key to remember that her father, um, Henry the Fourth of France, had once said that Paris was worth a mass. So he he converted to, to Catholicism in order to to the, the French throne. So for her, you know, seeing that Charles hanging on to bishops or the Church of England and potentially facing losing his throne, his family, she she really couldn't understand that. She couldn't understand the red line. She couldn't understand why he was defending the church and bishops she she accused him of destroying all that was dear to him for the sake of willfulness. And, and I think this is a, a really good point because I think even today, you know, there's a lot of sentiment that agrees with Henrietta and says, you know, it's willful. Um, and, and Charles, re, you know, re, responds to her saying, you know, I have neither a foolish nor peevish conscience. 
and he's trying to defend his position. He's saying it's an unjust slander. And the, their relationship is quite strained. Um, you know, she she even urges him to take the covenant. And and for him, that yeah. is very personal. If he was to take the covenant, for, for him, he would think, well, actually, God is just going to completely abandon me, you know, because I've completely abandoned him. Uh, and he, yeah. he says to Henrietta, you know, look, you're asking me to do this, but, you know, if I can ask you, sweetheart, you know, would you give up the Catholic Church? Um, and, and it's a good point, you know. But I think the key fact is you've got a very split opinion from his contemporaries. So there's, there's Henrietta, there's other close servants who uh, support what she's saying. But there's other people like Edward Hyde, who is praising the king's uh, resolve. So as I say, in that in that in in sixteen forty six to sixteen forty seven, Charles is standing firm. He's not making negotiations. Um, he's trying to earn God's favour, and Edward Hyde supports that. He says, "Look, mm. if the king just stands firm, trusts his own beliefs, uh, all will be well." Because his opponents are starting to fracture, you know. And there's the king who is standing for his supporters are heartened by this. Because I think Charles has always suffered, really from the start of his reign, from from a, a risk that he would flip flop. Um, mm. You know, he would often make a decision, uh, and rightly or wrongly, he would put himself into a position where it was put up or shut up. And and Charles, as much as he liked to be an, you know, he wanted that, you know, that that formality of that autocratic monarchy. He couldn't, he didn't have the ruthlessness to see it through. So whenever a crossroads, you know, occurred, he didn't want to push it to the brink of war. He didn't want to risk yeah. things. So he would back down. And of course, his enemies thought, well, if we push him too far for all of these fine, strong words he might come out with, ultimately he'll back down. And I think that his, his even his supporters thought that, well, what? You know, where are we going to leave ourselves if we're fighting for this monarch who will eventually just U-turn? So, yeah, there, there's a lot yeah. There's a lot of people who are re, returning to England and because they see the king standing firm. You know, he's closeted away in captivity, but actually nothing's coming out. There's no agreements coming out. So, so people are actually, you know, his hardline supporters are thinking, right, okay, we can do this, you know, we can restore him to his throne, to his rights. Um, you know, we can restore the, the status quo. Now, in 1646, he even says to Parliament, look, I'm standing my ground on certain points, but on other points I will negotiate. You know, he's saying, I'll consider you controlling the militia for three years. He then goes to 10 years. Um, he then says, you can have it for life, for my life, but give it back to my son. Um, you know, so he, so he does go further. But what he does say, crucially, he's saying to Parliament, I'll grant this, but I'm not granting that. And, you know, look at it this way. I could grant you everything and then just go back on it later and say, I've done it under duress. You know, but he's actually not. He's saying, no, I can't grant that. But mm -hmm. I will be flexible on this. How has his reputation fared since his death? How has it gone through the ages since then until, until the modern times? It's a bit of a roller coaster, I think. So um, immediately after his death, you've got biographies being released, sort of saying as a child, he was subject to willful humour. His nurses couldn't uh, do anything with them. Like Richard III, you know, he's turned into a monster. He crawled upon all fours in an unseemly manner, one wrote. And then you've got Icon Basilike, 
saw at least part written by the king eloquently arguing his case, and that was a bestseller. So you mentioned earlier the Restoration 1660. He's commemorated as a royal martyr, so that's undoubtedly the high point. Then as we enter the 18th century, um, you've got the Jacobite Rebellion, 1715, 1745. But, you know, throughout that, the, the celebrations of Charles's martyrdom continued on the anniversary of his uh, execution. You've got the birth of Prince Edward to the Hanoverian uh, George in 1739. There was no qualms about using a silver font that was reportedly used to baptise Charles I. He was given the titles once held by Charles, Duke of York, Duke of Albany. So the, the, the Hanoverians certainly, you know, uh, were, were happy to continue to sanctify Charles's um, legacy. But you, you've also got other thinkers. You've got Horace Walpole, so a Whig, younger son of Sir Robert. He hangs a copy of Charles's death warrant above his bed of all places and, and with the inscription Major Charter. And he wrote the least bad of all murders, that of a king. And then obviously, as you, you get to the end of, of that period, the French Revolution, you know, and Charles as a stereotypical absolute British monarch, I think is kind of conveniently left in the shadows a little bit. Nineteenth mm. century, eighteen thirteen, particularly bad year for Charles as the sanctity of his earthly remains. The Prince Regent exhumes the corpse, prods, pokes, takes mementos like locks of his hair, the vertebrae, one of the vertebrae from his back, shows them around at dinner parties. And then in eighteen fifty nine it looks, you know, even worse, so state services for his feast day are removed from the, the prayer book. Um, so it does seem like his legacy and reputation is flagging as, as Britain gets into the industrial age. But he has key supporters. He's got Queen Victoria and she leads calls for a suitable monument to the marks of Montrose. She commissions a, a monument to Charles's daughter, Elizabeth, who died the year after her father. Um, she restores those items that were taken by her uncle to Charles's coffin. Um, and you've also got Benjamin Disraeli. So he writes mm -hmm. of Charles, never did man lay down his heroic life for so great a cause, the cause of the church and the cause of the poor. So again, Charles is linked with the church. And I think that's what takes him on this rollercoaster ride with the church. In you've got the formation of the Society of King Charles the Martyr. You've got later that year... <laughs> Even London Evening Standard has a quote saying, Christians are wanting to make a worthy commemoration to a sovereign. And, and they say in this article, whatever mistakes he made politically, he was steadfast and devout to the church. 20th century, for, you know, after the First World War, Palmal Gazette, one reader found it extraordinary that any Englishman or Scotsman can regard Charles I as a martyr. And, and and this writer says, every schoolboy knows he wrote, you know, that, that the civil war with its slaughter of thousands of our countrymen was entirely due to that monarch's illegal taxation and, and attempts to rule absolutely. His partiality to popery, another myth, but one that's dogged him ever since. And then we've got the formation of the Royal Steward Society um, in 1926. Even in, as you know, 1928, you've got the synod of the church of, in Scotland, the Episcopal Church in Scotland, a move made that Charles's name be inserted in the calendar um, because he gave his life for the church, but it was de defeated. But nevertheless, you know, still, you know, even in 1928, we've got these uh, actions. Yeah. Um, we've got... That's quite the legacy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah, and, and it continues. So, you know, you've got 1937, the Cromwell Association, formed by Isaac Foote, so father of Labour leader Michael Foote. Mm-hmm. So, so it, Cromwell also has a rise in the Victorian times. Then you've got the Sealed Knot, English Civil War Society, fabulous organisations in the 70s being formed, you know, really bringing to life that era. But, you know, we, 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 today we still have this sickly tag with Charles. So Nadine Ackerman's recent biography of Elizabeth of Bohemia, Charles' sister, that there was a headline of Weedy Brother uh, that went along with a review in the, in the papers. Historic Royal Palaces released a video in January 2020 describing Charles's brother as strong, bright, sporty, uh, and Charles was listed as was sickly. So those 1650 biographies, they, they're not going away. But I think ultimately, in an age where church goings in decline, Charles, who's the Church of England's martyr, is naturally declining. I think fewer and fewer people are touched by his defence of the church, but more and more people compare our modern democracy to his style of monarchy and judge him in a 21st century context. So he, he's a tyrant, he's a murderer. And that two-dimensional murderer-martyr, it starts to turn into a one-dimensional tyrant. And I think that's the thing. If we lose sight of what motivated him and the context of his day, the upbringing, his beliefs, loves, losses, you know, then we do lose understanding of the history. I've got some chocolates that went to the Tower of London in, in Platinum <laughs> Jubilee. Tower of London. So chocolates have got Henry VIII here and Charles I. And on the back, a little bit of information. Now, Henry VIII, we've got a brutal double deal and cold-hearted monster. On the back of this chocolate, he's described as the perfect Renaissance prince. <laughs> yeah. Um, having crushed rebellion with savagery. And it says he's a respected and effective monarch. But then we've got Charles described as a believer in the divine right of kings with scant regard for parliament. Now, I think it's clear that what Charles is guilty of is not being ruthless enough. If he'd been another Henry VIII, he'd have won the Civil War hands down. So yeah. maybe if he didn't make so many concessions, he could have had a better write-up on these chocolates. And we'd respect <laughs> him. You know, we'd respect Charles I as an effective tyrant rather than condemning him as a field one. Well, thank you very much, Mark. That was that, that was absolutely epic and, and, and totally turns on its head that standard standard trope that you get of Charles I. So so thank you very much. Have you enjoyed yourself? I've thoroughly enjoyed it, yeah. Got it all off your chest and out of your system. Now, uh, have you? I, I said earlier, you know, my friends and family, you know, they're not interested in the 17th century. So when I, I can get the chance to talk about it, I love it. <laughs> so thank you for, for giving me the chance to just get that off my chest. You are welcome. <laughs> well, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. We'd appreciate, really re- appreciate any reviews you could leave for us with Apple Podchaser or Amazon. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at History Rage or individually, I am at Paul Baffle. But I am at Kyle G History. And if you subscribe to us on Patreon, you're really helping us meet the cost of podcasting. Your £5 per month will get you early episodes, entry into all of our prize draws, the invite to book questions to future guests, and of course, the coveted History Rage mug. And you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash History Rage. But until next week, from all of us here at Rage Towers, stay angry. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.